we finish up the 13th chapter of Luke's Gospel this morning, and a study that I've entitled Scare Tactics. Now, as we've been journeying with Jesus, you can kind of see how the heat keeps getting turned up in the proverbial kitchen in the Lord's life. And as we now draw near to his time, as he's getting closer and closer to Jerusalem, he's wandering through the region of Perea, which is the Jordan River Valley. He's been up in Galilee. He's been to the west in Nazareth and down through the Hermon Valley, down through the Valley of Megiddo. Uh, he's come into the region just north of Jer- Jerusalem, a very wilderness, very desolate area. Uh, he is now getting closer, and he's descended down, down into the valley uh, just to the east of Jerusalem. And he's now going to get word from a group of religious Jews. And those religious Jews have been kind of put to the task by the politicians. And this is where this becomes very, very pertinent to us today. Because politicians and those of a religious bent are still trying to silence those of us who love Jesus. Those who would like to say that all roads lead to heaven, or that their way is another way to get to heaven, are constantly trying to silence those of us who believe that Jesus said what he meant, meant what he said in John's gospel, that he alone is the way and the truth and the life. No one gets to heaven but by him. There is, in fact, no other name under heaven whereby men may be saved. And it was true then, and it's true now, that politicians and those of religious persuasion are very often the harshest critics of Christians. And in this case, the Lord Jesus himself. It started with him, and it continues to this day with us. And it truly is amazing to watch the Lord Jesus respond uh, to these various ways that his detractors, those who uh, do not want to believe that he was in fact and remains to this day God's only solution to man's sin problem. Those that would say, now there's got to be some other way. There are people today that believe that this earth is actually God. There are people who believe that, you know, if you happen to take a trip and you travel a little bit east of here over to Arizona, you travel north from Phoenix or south from Flagstaff down to that town of Sedona, you can go find yourself a nice vortex. And you can sit in the middle of it and you can channel your inner being and hopefully find yourself. Find some path to God. The Hindus believe that Jesus was a prophet. Muslims believe that Jesus was a prophet. Buddhists believe that Jesus was one of those uh, people who were on the ninefold path. But in fact, Jesus declared of himself, I am actually God's only son. And he who believes in me will not perish, but have everlasting life. He is one of one. 
world hates that. The world still hates that. The detractors are still here. And so we're going to see as Jesus now confronts a group of Pharisees who've been sent from a regional ruler named Herod. Exactly how crazy it was then shouldn't shock us that it's still crazy today. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time, Lord, which you ordained as you flung the stars into space, as you authored life on this earth. Jesus was the answer. He remains so and the only answer to mankind's problem. Lord, the only way that we can be forgiven of our sin, the only way that we can be cleansed, the only possible explanation for your love for us is found in Jesus. Lord, you've loved us to the uttermost and you died for us that we might know you. Pray that you would speak to us now through your word, that we'd be more in love with you when we leave than when we came in. We thank you for this time, God. Bless us as we study, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 31 as we continue on now with some scare tactics. And on that very day, now remember, he's just delivered these parables talking about the false church. He's made it very clear that there's ways that seem right unto man, but the end of it is death. He continues the same message, and he's getting it from the same basic group of people. It's people who think there's another way. It's governments who are trying to control how the people think and act. And on that very day, some Pharisees came saying to him, Remember who the Pharisees are. They're kind of the foot soldiers of the Jewish religious movement. They are the legalists. They are the ones that occupy most of the synagogues. The Sadducees were more like the religious court. They were the religious rulers. They ruled uh, the Sanhedrin, which met in the, the building adjacent to Herod's great temple in Jerusalem. And so they were the libertine people. They were the ones who kind of believed some strange things, including that there was no resurrection of the dead. And so the Pharisees are kind of the guys that you would bump into most of the time if you bumped into someone representing Judaism. Much like today in evangelical Christendom, you would probably bump into a pastor. The Pharisees have now come to Jesus. And they say to him, get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. They bring a threat, and it's not veiled. It's very clear what their intent is. It's very clear that Herod means to do Jesus harm. Notice how the Lord responds to them. Think about it for a second. Jesus had gone toe-to-toe with Satan himself in the wilderness. Amen? I don't believe the Lord Jesus was all that afraid of anybody. I think if he decided that he wanted to call down a legion of angels, that was perfectly within his power. And so Jesus is not only not dissuaded, he is now going to let those who are listening know the truth. And so he says to them, go tell that fox, that fox being Herod, behold, I cast out demons 
and perform cures today and tomorrow. And on the third day I shall be perfected. Look, no amount of you telling me to stop doing what I'm doing is going to keep me from doing what I'm doing. Wouldn't it be good, wouldn't it be wonderful, if the church who bears the name of the Lord Jesus Christ were called Christians for a reason, little Christ's, if we took up that same position? I'm going to preach Christ today, I'm going to preach Christ tomorrow, and I'm going to preach Christ until Jesus comes and gets me. What Jesus was saying was, this is what I came for. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I intend. And no amount of you threatening me is going to keep me from going where I've been called to go. Nevertheless, I must journey today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. He is being a bit sarcastic. There's some irony here. He's using some hyperbole. He's reminding them, hey, look, you guys have killed every prophet that God has sent to you. Think about the prophet is not one of those things that you would sign up for in the Old Testament. Amen? It did not go so well. It wasn't exactly a fun job. It usually involved lots of humiliation and ultimately an untimely death. And almost always in Jerusalem, at the hands of those who should know better. And so then he begins to finish this chapter off by letting them know exactly what it is was on his heart. And so he says to them, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, city of peace, God's peace, Jerusalem, city of God's peace, the one who kills the prophets, stones those who were sent to her, How often I wanted to gather your children together. How often I wanted to bring my brothers and sisters, my fellow Jews together. How often I attempted to speak the truth to those who should know me the best. Those who heard for more than a thousand years out of the mouth of the prophets of God. From Moses all the way to Malachi. Those who had more biblical truth pronounced to them specifically than any other people group that's ever been on the planet Earth. How often I wanted to gather you and your children, my brothers and sisters that are Jewish by birth, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. I don't know how many of you have ever seen that actually happen. But it's almost staggering how many tiny chicks can be stuffed underneath one hen. And she can still move while they're under there. And it just kind of puffs herself out, fluffs up her feathers under her breast and her chest, puts her wings out, and then all of a sudden you see this seemingly kind of chubby chicken kind of wandering around, and then she puts her wings out and... There they go. She does that for one basic reason. Protection. A second reason. Guidance and direction. 
He's saying, look, it's dangerous out there. Jesus is saying, look, it's dangerous in the world. I wanted to gather you together just like a mother hen would gather her chicks and take you where you need to go, but you were a bunch of wayward chicks. That doesn't mean girls, by the way. You were a bunch of baby chickens scattered everywhere. Have you ever seen what happens when a mother hen chicks begin to go their own way? They, they can go an amazing array of different directions. And that mother hen scurries around and tries to get them all back underneath. They were going wherever they wanted to go. Right into danger. Jesus is saying, look, I'd like to gather you to protect you and direct you, but you want to go your own way. Notice what he says next. He says, but you were not willing. Not you could not, but you would not. Not that there wasn't enough information available to you, and in fact, God had been faithful for more than a thousand years to speak prophetically into the lives of Jewish people. They had what we call the Torah, the first five books. They had the Tanakh, the rest of the Old Testament. They had had prophet after prophet, Amos, Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Obadiah, Zechariah. All these men had spoken Time after time after time after time again. Saying, look, there's one who's coming. The body of prophetic evidence that was available to them in what they already had in written form was staggering. Ezekiel had told them. Isaiah had told them. David, their great king and priest, had told them. There is a prophet who's coming, and he's one who is greater than Moses. But they would not. Because they didn't like what this prophet stood for. They wanted a political ruler. Frankly, they wanted someone who would deal Rome a death blow so they could have a theocracy. They didn't want what Jesus was which was the humble high priest of heaven. They didn't want a lamb, they wanted a lion. They didn't want someone who was going to die, they wanted someone who was going to kill. They wanted somebody who was going to just slaughter the Romans. And yet if they'd actually bothered to read what we call the Old Testament, specifically the prophetic Old Testament, they would have known that he was going to come as a king on a donkey. They would have known that he would be pierced. They would have known that he was going to give his life a ransom for many. They would have known that Jesus had come to die. They didn't want that. And so he says to them, See, your house is left to you desolate, And assuredly, I say to you that you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That would happen a first time some months later. 
But it will happen a second time. And that one's yet future. And so this morning, we have Herod Antipas in view. It's always important for us to remember when you see the name Herod, it's not the same person. It was a ruling family of Herods, if you will, plural, lots of them. And in fact, there are three that play prominently uh, in the life of Christ, and there is one particularly in view in this particular passage. But it's helpful to go back and remember exactly what the political climate was like then, because the political climate was what was driving the religious climate. Do we see that in our world today? It is the political climate that is driving the religious climate. The church is being told what it's supposed to believe by the government. Oh, it's sly. It's bailed. It's called the threat of losing your tax-exempt status. It's called, well, you can't really say that because we believe something different than what the Bible says. Jesus believed exactly what the Bible said. Matter of fact, he was the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. He made no qualms about where he stood, and neither should the church today make any qualms about where it stands with regard to Jesus. If Jesus is not the only way, truth, and life, then this is all just a bunch of philosophy. And if it's philosophy, you can't be saved. But the political climate then was a, was a power struggle. It began really with Herod the Great, and Herod the Great uh, was a, a very, very, very strong and powerful ruler who ruled the region that we would call today uh, Israel. It was called then, uh, in some cases, Palestine, in some cases, Perea, in some cases, Judea, in some cases, Galilee. But it was that region of the world that today is the land of Israel. And Herod the Great was a tremendous ruler in that he was absolutely uncompromising in his plans to make sure that everybody did exactly what he said. And so he embarked on multiple different building projects. And if you go to the land of Israel today, uh, you can see the effects of some of those building projects undertaken by the father of the Herod that is going to get in Jesus' face here. That would be Herod the Great. Herod the Great was put in power by the Romans. He was put in power over the land of Palestine for one single purpose. To kind of be the mediator between Rome and the Jews. And the reason they put him in power was largely because of his ancestry. He was half Idumean, which would make him a modern day Jordanian. He would also make him a direct descendant of Esau, not Jacob. He was married to a woman from the Sinai, so she was an Arab. And it was a political alliance to kind of keep the peace. And so as Herod began to do Rome's bidding, he believed that one of the quickest ways to get to the hearts of the Jews was to build them a temple. And so it was Herod's expansion of the temple in Jerusalem that actually bought him some favor with the Jewish people. And in fact, if you travel to Israel today and you go to what we call the Wailing Wall, they call it the Western Wall, 
They call the Wailing Wall the IRS. They have an internal revenue service as well. That's where they go to wail. But if you go to the Wailing Wall, what you will see, those large blocks, especially if you do the underground tour of the wall that extends underneath what is now part of the city that is buried, you will find the wall that Herod built to support the gigantic temple that he constructed for the Jewish people. Now, he didn't do it so much to bless them as he did to placate them. And so on that temple mount was a wonderful, beautiful temple. If you go to Masada, you will find the remains of Herod's temple at Masada, descending down the slope of the north face of that mountaintop fortress. If you travel into Jordan, you will find another te- another. Uh, palace, in essence, made by Herod the Great at Macarus. And that would be where this Herod, Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, killed John the Baptist. So this is a ruling political dynasty, all with the name Herod. Herod the Great, Herod Archelaus, And Herod Antipas. And so if you remember in the story, the visit of the Magi, when they came to seek out where where this Christ child was, they actually came to Herod the Great. It was Herod the Great that said, look, we're killing off all the two-year-olds and unders that are in the region of Bethlehem. There's one sure way to make sure this Messiah doesn't come to this earth. We'll take care. We don't want any political foes. As you begin to realize this is politically motivated, you can see what's going on here. Dad had said, hey, we need to get rid of this Jesus guy because he's got a crowd of people following him. Son says, we got to get rid of this Jesus guy because he's got a crowd of people. We don't want anybody stepping on our territory here. And so he begins to put forth a plan to make sure that Jesus never sees the light of day. And so we come to Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas, uh, the current Herod that we're dealing with in this passage, was kind of a low-level ruler. He was not Herod the Great. He was not king. You see, Herod the Great had been made king by Rome. He was actually a tetrarch. A tetrarch means simply a ruler of a fourth part. And he ruled from a very specific place. And this is where it gets interesting for us. He ruled from Galilee. Where was Jesus from? Galilee. And so it makes every bit of sense that they're trying to push this political rabble-rouser who is gaining power in the region because people are flocking to hear him. He's saying some crazy things like, love your neighbor. We can't have that because we want people to fear us. So Rome says, get the political rulers who now benefited from Herod's temple that he built, the wealth that's been accumulated, and get this guy to go back to Galilee, back to Herod Antipas. Deal with him there. Let's silence him by making him irrelevant. Let's keep him from going to Jerusalem. 
Now you can see why Jesus came against this ruler with such vigor. He says, you tell that fox, no way on earth. You tell that fox, I'm going to preach today. I'm going to preach tomorrow. I'm going to preach next month, next week. And I'm going to keep preaching until I've finished what I came to do. No way was the Lord Jesus put off by these threats. And so in the end, Herod simply gets his political connections going. He gets a hold of the Pharisees, his political toadies, if you will. You go tell him we're going to kill him. And we'll silence him that way. We can't stop the people from loving him because he keeps feeding masses of people who are hungry. We can't keep the people from loving him because he keeps healing the blind and, and the lame. Ah, I wish he'd quit doing that. The lame keep walking wherever he, he keeps doing these kinds of things. We can't silence him, so we'll scare him into obscurity. That, friends, is exactly what the world's trying to do to you right now. Scare you into obscurity. Trying to silence the power of the name of Jesus by getting the church to go back to Galilee. Just go, just stay inside your church and everything will be fine. But don't you dare put forth your views in the public square. Don't tell anybody that you actually believe in Jesus. And for sure, you need to be way more tolerant. Because all roads lead to heaven. We can't have this narrow way thing that Jesus just talked about. Amen? It's got to be all roads lead to heaven. And so Herod begins to threaten Jesus. Now, I want to leave you with this in this regard, with this part of this remaining few verses here in chapter 13. Herod Antipas occupies a very, very rare place in all of Scripture. He is the only person in the entire Bible to be personally disrespected by Jesus. You go tell that fox, it ain't happening. I'm not afraid of him. I'm going to Jerusalem. And furthermore, let me give you a little bit of background about Jerusalem. And then he goes on to speak to those because the people that brought him the message were Jews. Amen? Think about it. Let me tell you about your beloved Jerusalem and your beloved temple. When Jesus spoke these words, that beloved temple was sitting on the beloved temple mount, glistening in the sun. Herod gilded it with gold. You could see it for miles away. It was not as you see it today, a rather desolate plateau with a couple of really ugly buildings on it. Uh, yes, the Dome of the Rock the Harim al-Sharif has a gold dome on it paid for by the king of Jordan. But it's ugly. Frankly, it's tacky. It looks nice when you look at it in pictures. But if you walk up to it, it looks like a bunch of ten-year-olds were handed tiles. Here, go put these on that building. It's not exactly a wonderful piece of architecture. It's kind of plain. But at that time... There was a beautiful temple and the Sanhedrin standing on the Temple Mount. So, the Herods had kind of bought off the religious rulers. So here's what you get to do. Go tell that Jesus guy to shut up or we're going to kill him. 
How does Jesus respond? Notice what Jesus says back to them. Four things that as we wrap this chapter up, you can see here. He just says, look, guys, it isn't going to go well for you. It isn't going to work out the way you think it's going to work out. You're not going to silence me. I'm not going to wander away into the hills. I'm not afraid of you. I went toe-to-toe with Satan. I don't really think you offer much more in the way of a conflict than that. So here's what I have to say. First, a, a fatal denunciation. He says, nevertheless, in verse 33, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. He just with sarcasm and scorn says, look, you guys have killed all the rest of the prophets. Why should I be any different? He uses a very, very rare, used once in the entire Bible, a Greek word here, to say it cannot be. And the reason he does that is because he's the only one that could fulfill it. It cannot be. When you look back at the Old Testament, it's pointing towards a very specific King of Kings, Lord of Lords, coming Messiah. It's inescapable, in fact. If you look at what the Bible says about who the Messiah would be, where he would be born, what year he would march into Jerusalem the first time, it tells you what manner of execution he would have, that he would be pierced through in his side. It gives you details about Christ's life that are so undeniably Jesus, that what he's saying is, look, I am the only one about whom these things are true. It cannot be, because you've killed all the rest of the prophets, and I am the one that Moses spoke about, the one who would come and yet be greater than he. If you sit down at a Passover Seder, they set a place for the Elijah who is to come. Little did they know that that Elijah who is to come has already come. One time he's coming again. His name is Jesus. They're looking for the prophet. They're looking for that final mouthpiece. They're going to one day see exactly who he is. And so he uses this word, indicomai. It's not fitting, because I'm the only one who fits. Nobody else in the entire universe fits into that hole except for me. A great city where God himself, think about it, that great city where God himself had resided between the cherubim on the top of the Ark of the Covenant for the Jewish people. He had literally met with them personally was now a monument to Herod the Great, called Herod's Temple. And soon they would become the murderer of God's Son. And so he says a second thing, and it's a factual description of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. And he says, how often I wanted to gather you together. God has been wanting to gather together the Jewish people since day one. And if you look at the complexion of the early first century church, if you read from Acts chapter 2 on forward into the book of Acts and read what the church is about, the church is saved Jews. It's Jewish people who got it. That's Messiah. That's King of Kings. That's Lord of Lords. He is who he says he is. He's great I am. And Jesus loved Jerusalem. 
but he loved more the people who were in it. You remember as we started Luke's gospel, there was a little a little incident that uh, child protective services could have been called on. Mary and Joseph went to Jerusalem with Jesus. You remember that little uh, incident we studied earlier? And they bailed. They were almost back to Nazareth. They left Jesus in Jerusalem. He's like 10, 12 years old. Wandering around Jerusalem. Didn't bother him. He loved Jerusalem. Where did they find him? On the steps of the temple. Preaching. He knew every stall. He knew every tower. He knew where the people sold and bought goods. He, he knew where the water sort. Jesus loved Jerusalem. He had been preaching there since he was 12 years old. He loves the Jews. And so when you read Romans chapter 11 and it plainly states that one day all Israel will be saved, Jesus is now looking forward to that time. But he says in the meantime... The one who kills the prophets, stones those who were sent to her, allowed for the rise of a person like Antiochus Epiphanes, the mighty Judas Maccabees came and set it free, only to have it recaptured again, only to be occupied by the Romans, only to have the Roman siege fall upon it. Rome ruled with an iron fist. And down the road there would be a fearful destruction. Notice the the third thing here that we can see in the first part of verse 35. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. If you go to Jerusalem today, you will not find a temple on the Temple Mount. You will find two mosques, but no temple. And the reason for that is what Jesus said would happen, happened. Your house is left desolate to you. In eighty-seven, seventy, the the Roman general then Titus, who would later become uh, actually the Caesar, destroyed Jerusalem, laid siege to it, a violent siege, and in fact they were so dismayed by the amount of resistance that the Jews put forth that they utterly destroyed Jerusalem. They burned it to the ground on top of toppling the walls. And in fact, the rubble that you see today is scattered over, especially into the city of Zion, which is on the south side, into the Hinnom Valley, into the Kidron Valley, is nothing but the rubble from the Temple Mount. Your city will be left desolate to you. And from that day to this, there has been no temple on the Temple Mount. And Jesus said it would happen. During that time, lots of historical evidence that the Romans were merciless. Flavius Josephus would record that tens of thousands of Jews were crucified. Their bodies hung in various states of dismemberment along the roads in and out of Jerusalem. Don't even think about doing this to Rome. Jesus was speaking, look, you can cling to your religion all day long. But I'm going to keep doing what I came here to do. And that's to set men free. And then finally, as we wrap this up, verse 35, 
See, your house is left desolate, and assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me until. Notice it doesn't say you won't see me. It says until. Very important word that you should circle. Until. The time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now there were some that would see him when he came the first time into Jerusalem. A couple of months after this event. And you remember they lined the roads and they shouted this very thing. Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And there were some who got it. And those shouted it for real. But many did not meet the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But he's saying there's going to come a time when that will actually be true. And though on that first Palm Sunday, it was very clear what he was talking about, Jesus was actually speaking prophetically. He was pushing this whole event out into the future. Palm Sunday there in AD 32, it happened. Jesus came into Jerusalem. And some people actually got it. But what he was really doing was putting God's holy apostrophe in time. Daniel chapter 9 reminds us there, in verse 22 to 26, uh, of that prophecy of the 70 weeks and 69 of them being fulfilled. And your Bible tells you exactly what would happen in the fulfillment of that prophecy. That at the end of that, the Messiah himself would be cut off. Not for himself, but for us. And God begins to, to work in mankind in grace. No longer religion in grace. By faith. And so he says, look, everything that was needed to, to precede all of this has occurred. Apostrophe. One week. One week of years. Seven years is left. Your Bible describes it as a time of Jacob's trouble, the tribulation of days. And that whole focus of that last week is one people group on the entire earth, and that's the Jews. It is so that the Jewish people would come to know Messiah. And at the end of that period of time, after the 144,000 Jewish evangelists are set forth on the earth, after the battle of Armageddon, after the rapture of the church at the beginning of that period of tribulation, when Jesus comes again, your Bible says that the Jewish people will actually then see the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And Jesus is saying, until then, it's all Greek to me. It's desolate. Don't know what's going on. And I believe that the Lord is actually ramping up the horses in heaven even now. You watch what's going on right now in Israel. Been going on since 1948. May 14th when they became a nation again in the land speaking again the Hebrew language. As that nation has grown. There's no more despised group of people on the planet Earth than the Jews. Christians are probably second. But universally hated, the Jewish people hold that category.
They're it. And as you look through at what the Lord would say, He's saying, look, you're going to see me for who I really am at that point in time. Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10, it says, And I will pour out on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace. The spirit of grace is salvation. Amen? The Jewish people are not a saved bunch of people right now. They're a lost bunch of people. Matter of fact, they are the most secular nation on earth. Even though they're Jewish, they're not even religiously Jewish, most of them. They're secular. Spirit of grace has not fallen on Israel yet. But it will. Because your Bible says so. And Zechariah prophesied it. And he did that about 400 years before Jesus was walking on the earth. And they will look on me. Now think about this. Zechariah said, Whoever it is they're going to look on was pierced. What happened to Jesus at the cross? His side was pierced. Amen? Zechariah said, They will look on me whom they pierced. And Jewish people had a hand in the death of Jesus. Yes, they will mourn for him as one who mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one who grieves for his firstborn. And in that day, that little phrase there in verse 11 of Zechariah 12, there shall be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning at Hadad Ramon on the plain of Megiddo. The Jewish people will finally get the picture. It's like, it was him. Because Jesus is going to come back the second time to fight the battle of Armageddon. To deal with how the world has treated the nation Israel. To deal with sin. Ezekiel 43 says that when Jesus returns, it will come to that eastern gate. If you go to the eastern gate today, the golden, if you go to that gate and you stand before it, you're going to find a walled up hole. There's no hole there. The Muslims, knowing this prophecy, walled it up. Can't come through it. If there's no hole in the walls, we'll wall the hole up. I hate to tell you, that's not going to be much of a challenge for Jesus. Read that passage in Ezekiel 43. It goes on to say in verse 6, And then I heard him speaking to me. Ezekiel heard Jesus himself speaking to me from the temple. In order for whoever this is, when they come back, and the Jews will see him as one who they have pierced, in order for that to happen, there's got to be a temple on the temple mount. There is no temple on the temple mount, so there's a temple coming to the temple mount. God's going to make sure of it. And right now, every government on earth says, you ain't building no temple on top of the temple mount. It's not happening, including ours. Our government has forbidden the Jews from even thinking about putting a temple on the temple mount. Under threat of pulling all of our financial aid. Don't do it. Because war will break out in the Middle East if you do. And yet Jesus says there in verse 7 of Ezekiel 43, This is the place of my throne. Hasn't happened yet. But Jesus was so sure it would. He said, Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, your house is left desolate unto you until 
one day you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Antichrist's task for that first three and a half years of the tribulation will be to unite the Jewish people with the rest of the world through a peace treaty. Your Bible says that he will allow them to rebuild that temple on the Temple Mount. And then in the middle of that three and a half year period of time that is the first half, he will break that treaty and then set himself up to be worshipped in that same temple. Three and a half years later, Jesus will be coming back. Exactly as he said. And then, as Romans 11 says, all Israel will be saved. They'll see Jesus for who he is. And they will mourn him because they pierced him. But they'll see him for who he is. And then they will say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for that truth. Lord, we thank you that you're unlimited in your power to perform. And Lord, all these things that seem so difficult uh, because of the political climate on this earth, God, uh, you will cause to come to pass just as surely as you created this earth from nothing. Lord, it will be no big thing for you. And God, we pray that in these last days, God, as we look forward to that time when uh, you, Jesus, will uh, mount that white horse and come back, Lord, with that robe and the name on the thigh that is King of kings and Lord of lords. God, we look forward with great anticipation. Lord, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Lord, we ask that you would minister to those who, God, are seeking you even this, this day, God, in, in those little villages that are in the occupied West Bank, Lord, those Palestinian territories controlled by Hamas. Lord, we pray for the Christians that are there uh, to simply be able to, to know you in the power of your resurrection. We pray for the Jewish people, God, that their hearts would be open and inclined uh, to know you, Jesus, as the only way. Father, we thank you for the power of this passage. We pray that we would be bold about speaking the truth and speaking that truth in love. Lord, we're grateful for the promises that you're going to square all this stuff away one day. Lord, all the inequity that's ever occurred, you'll take care of. And so, Lord, we bless you. We praise you. And we thank you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.